Hello, I'm violinist and composer Hannah Warmer, and welcome to my new podcast, where I'll be discussing everything violin, classical music and film music related, plus anything else that pops into my brain. So make sure you join me every Wednesday. Hey guys, and welcome to episode four of my podcast, The Rosin Diaries. Um, Each week I'm trying out a different way to record. Ideally, the best recording is done in a studio, and that's what episode one was, so you'll hear it's very clean. Uh, Episode two was done in my garden, just off the phone. Episode three, like this one, was done from mouth speakers, but not in a cold environment. Now, I was talking to pianist Daniel Roberts about this, and I said I actually feel a lot more comfortable having conversations, and a lot more, I don't know, conversational when I'm not in a dry space, such as a studio. It's hard to stare at blank walls and go for long periods of time with your thoughts. I don't know, I haven't spent much time in therapy, I'm guessing. But even even if you were in therapy, you would have a therapist, you know, conversing with you. So to just sit and talk about my thoughts, I'd much rather be in a homely environment. Today, I'm in a room overlooking my garden, but there's still some traffic noise and some bird noise and animals are running past. But let me know, you guys, if you'd prefer it in the um, studio with a nice clean sound, I can go back there. I'm just experimenting with sound at the moment. Now, the podcast is doing exceptionally well, much better than I thought it would do, actually. Um, but make sure you email me, assistant at online, or if you're listening to this through Anchor FM, the producers of this podcast, or if you go onto my Anchor FM profile, you can leave a voice message that will be played into one of my next podcasts. So I've had a few emails for already, and I will get through to them on other episodes. But today we have a few very specific topics. So our first topic today, what is a conductor? What do they do? And why aren't there more women conducting? So to get this right, first of all, we have to go, don't I love this, back in the day. So back towards late medieval times, um, at this time, music was either for the court and the king or for the church. And as both wanted to become more elaborate and show off a little bit more, so did their music. Uh, all forms of culture, really, it showed when you weren't in combat and showing yourself through military prowess. Uh, the way you could show um, to your courtiers and to your supporters what a strong leader you were, um, how much finance you had really, how much you know, it was a good idea to support you, as well as to your enemies, how affluent you were, um, how cultured you are, how clever you are, was through artwork, tapestries, music, all these sorts of things were a pastime but they also were a way of politics really, showing yourself. For example, in Hampton Court, they have tapestries on the wall and each tapestry, it costs five battleships to make one tapestry. 
And so around the wall in one great hall where you'd entertain guests, there'd be, I think, about 20 tapestries. And that really shows your might. This is, this is just a thing on the wall. Um, but within it, there was gold, gold thread, um, very expensive thread, actually. And the, also the, the skill that went into making those tapestries, everything about the palace though it was beautiful these palaces and churches though they're beautiful on the outside and they are wonderful pieces of art they are also giving subliminal messages and this goes to music as well so the more elaborate your music the more you can um show these things you really um and develop and have bigger orchestras and new composers and patronize a lot of young up-and-coming composers I discovered him this became as Europe became a more a semi-peaceful place there were less little kingdoms and more larger kingdoms so that involved less in-house fighting to an extent then um, arts were the way to go to show your might and so as music groups got bigger then there needed more rules and regulations and discipline. Um, so these days we have one of the biggest selling um, styles of music is pop music, popular music. And years ago I was in a, well, no, I, I knew my neighbour was in a band and he wanted me to come watch his band um, rehearse. And he asked me, without the drummer in the band, like, because string quartets and things don't have drummers, how do you stay in time? Um, well, it's simple. In a string quartet or a small ensemble, you you stick together through eye contact and through listening. And that's, that becomes more difficult in each environment you're in. Um, obviously, there's differences of acoustics and, and you have to build these skills up. But when the ensemble is very, very large, there's a conductor. Now, let's go back to medieval time with that little, you know, breakthrough of modern my modern day experiences so in medieval times as these ensembles got bigger they needed someone to keep them in time and originally the conductor he would keep time by beating the ground with a big stick he'd stand at the front with a big stick and beat time this obviously in some cases, when it's not medieval music with a sort of, <laughs> with a little bit of drumming and, and rhythms and dancing involved, you know, when it's more sedate, that's going to really interfere the music. So they started to develop a way where it doesn't interfere the music, and that is where conducting technique comes in. I would describe conductors today as being the musicians of the orchestra they are the musicians it is their musical vision that's coming out when a full orchestra is playing the piece and the musicians themselves are more like their instruments so um, with their right hand usually right hand they conduct the pulse of the music the beat of the music whether it's four beats in a bar three beats in a bar and if you watch this is a good thing if you're watching a, a conductor on TV or live then whenever his hand goes up in the air, vertically up, then that is the last beat of the last bar. So if you're in three, and we're gonna conduct strictly now, we'll go on to more elaborate conducting later on, but um, you will kind of do a triangle sh shape with the third beat bar, one, two, three, being the hand going up in the air. That is so that 
if sometimes in the orchestra you can't you, you're in a bad position and you can't always see the conductor at every point the full you know especially if you're short like me but the upbeat you know the upbeat of the bar so that leads you to the downbeat the first beat of the next bar the one so the last beat of the bar is very important to musicians because it shows you where the first beat of the bar is going to be and you know we all want to know where this bar starts bars of music it's um Many of you guys know, many of you are musicians, amateur or professional yourself, but in, um, that was, sorry, that's Megan sneezing, um, bars of music, it, it, it orders our notes. So music is really about ordering chaos. In some places they can move very much in one with nature, but nature itself is very ordered. If you ever look at a beehive, the symmetry involved in that, so there's a lot of order to nature, and music itself is fundamentally ordering nature, um, is my belief. I haven't done much research on this. Um, <laughs> all views are my own. Um, so the right hand of the conductor really kind of does, keeps that pulse. But at the same time, as, as you get higher up in orchestras, more professional orchestras, and greater, more well-known conductors, that pulse is very elaborate sometimes or very understated so you can barely see it but one thing they do tend to all conductors tend to do is keep the upbeat the final bit of the bar and the first bit of the bar in there they may miss out some of the middle beats we can all handle that it gives a more fluidity to the music rather than strict time for every beat of that bar especially if the bars in eight or six or five's a difficult one um but yeah to keep fluidity within the ensemble many conductors do not conduct every bit of the bar but you know the last and the first are important now the left hand is used more for musical expression and that's sort of like dynamics louds and quiets speed sometimes his whole body a conductor also face and body express the music to people they may focus on areas of orchestra of importance at times also the conductor's score right in front of him it's a when um i as if i was playing in an orchestra what i'm reading like would take two pages to read like a book for a conductor he's turning pages all the time because he's got everyone's music right in front of him now how can a conductor read all those parts he can't he really can't but conductors really study the score very much in advance they know the music inside and out and so they're very well aware who's the melody, who's of importance. Not with the melody, the counter melody, it's like a second melody. Harmony parts when um, the brass are going to make a big entrance. And they will be aware where it is in the score on that page. And they'll be focusing on different parts. So the score's there just to, as a reminder really, um, to um, help them out with their memory. So that is what a conductor does. And so when people talk about a certain conductor's interpretation, it really is. And interpretation itself is not changing the notes, but how you interpret. When the score says, for example, um, I don't know, Alamando or Largo or various Italian words, that mean a certain uh, emotional context. It's how that conductor tries to bring out that emotion and so each conductor's vision is slightly different and how they work with the orchestra is also a bit like a director for a film I suppose it's not just about their vision like how they see the score but their relationship with the orchestra and the orchestral musicians 
in rehearsal time, a lot of the work goes on in rehearsal time and on stage, is the difference between a good and a bad or a mediocre performance. So there's a lot that goes into it, but I'd say, yeah, being a conductor is a bit like being an iceberg. You're very cold. <laughs> no, it's more it's more under the surface than what you see on stage. And that's for most musicians, actually, generally. Um, so that's what a conductor does. Now to the second question. Why aren't there more women? For those of you not involved in classical music, there's been this question for a long time. Why is there not more women? Because it's not... There are certain physical and possibly mental attributes to men and women, some of which may be stereotypical, some may be biological, you know, the studies are still out. But why aren't there more women? Because it's not really... In fact, in music in general, the, if we're going to go for stereotypical roles of women and, and, and what are stereotyped as women, what we're good at and what we're bad at, it's surprising that in music there's so many men because like women are meant to be stereotyped to be the more and I put this in quotation emotional of the two species so it's surprising and shocking that there's so many men in the arts if you think about it because yeah you'd think that would be the place that we thrive but looking back in time not conductor wise there was a lot of female composers and a lot of female musicians that were there and were doing incredibly well but because of historical context and the way the world was back then that as they grew up and grew to adulthood i'm thinking of mozart's sister now um they had to give up that pursuit and in other cases like clara schumann perhaps let our husband take credit for her work <laughs> So they have always been there. Conducting-wise, I think it would have been difficult back in the day because as much as you can work under the surface um, composing, it's very hard to work under the surface conducting because that's a very public role. So that could explain the lack of female conductors. But why are there now? I mean, there are some very well-known ones. Marin Alsop is probably one of the most female, most famous female conductors of this time. And they are gradually getting there. I mean, down to my personal opinion is, it's, it's not necessarily women being held back by society. I think it's lots of things. Growing up as a girl, it was never a dream of mine to be a conductor. It never even dawned on me. Um as a, f a female violinist. Now, there was uh, Vanessa May, before I even got heavy into classical, who had Vanessa May on the classical crossover um, kind of circuit. There, but there, Nicola Benedetti um, and Sophie Mutter, they were these beautiful women, and I know it's, you don't have to be a beautiful woman to be successful or a female role model, but, you know, little girls who do like a bit of makeup and a frilly dress, <laughs> seeing women of all types, performing the violin and many of them being very very beautiful and um wearing beautiful evening dresses is something yeah i'd like to do that yeah I, you know playing the violin yeah this is a pursuit that suits me whereas if you look into the conducting world really perhaps it's just overlooked by a lot of young girls because before you ever consider a career on a deeper level you as a child consider a career in a very shallow level 
you know, children, I want to be a vet. It's purely because they like animals. They don't think, how now, what is the qualifications of this? How, you know, I'm going to have to euthanize some animals. Do I have the, my, the hours you have to work per day? You don't think that, do you? In the same way, I want to be a teacher, I want to be a doctor, I want to be, even when you hear this a lot today, I want to be a reality star. They don't look at the pressures or the amount of suicides, you know, per capita. They just look at, you know, the things, the shallow side of it, quickly looking there. They, they're all smiling and they're wearing nice clothes and they're, you know, seem to have a lovely life, so I want to do that. So probably little girls do not see the job of conductor with any seriousness, especially if they don't come from a musical family. Now, if they come from a musical family, they can see it at a deeper level because they can see what's involved and really know, yeah, this is good for me. But gradually, women are coming through. There are some very, and I know this is a tired subject at the moment, but sexist fractions of classical music. I have in the past run the Woolmer Philharmonic Orchestra. It received Arts Council funding, Heritage Lottery funding, and um one other actually lottery funding i forgot the name just now but it, it did very well but it took so much of my time because in order to run an orchestra you have to have trustees and a committee and much more time i ended up as the orchestra grew spending more time on the committees than i did i stopped having to perform with the orchestra because i just <laughs> couldn't do it it's overseeing everything overseeing the finances, making sure there's nothing out of place, overseeing the logistics, because um, I think eventually, years down the line, um, I would be able to take a step back from that, but when you've got new people in the roles, your your head's still on the line, so you've got to oversee everyone. I started off not enjoying it so much, because there's no music, it was ballrooms. Um, so, but I started WPO Orchestra, and in 2015, uh, Daniel Roberts performed the Rachmaninoff Concerto and we had a female conductor, a really amazing conductor. Daniel recommended her, everyone loved her, but I did have one male musician, not naming names, don't know if he listens to the podcast, who came up to me and questioned my choice of, well he questioned every choice of mine pretty much because a woman and he could do things better. Despite me being the one who got all this together, got all the funding, <laughs> you know, he could do it better, you know. I just got luck, purely luck. But if he had my luck, he could do better, right? Um, he'd really like to help me out, take some burden off my soldier, sh soldier's shoulders. Um, but he did question, like he questioned every choice, make a choice of conductor. And he wasn't overly, he just, when we got down to it, he just doesn't like female conductors, he finds them very off-putting at the front. That's generally what he said. Genuinely, not generally, it wasn't a general thing. That is a verbatim quote. He finds them very off-putting. I said, well, maybe you should get less put off by females then. If, if, they're, you know, if they're screwing with your playing, get more professional. Get a bit more dedicated to your work, you know? Before one time in a concert when I was performing a solo, a lady had a big hat at the front of the room and that really put me off. But do you know what I did? I just focused a little bit more and got through it. <laughs> when I first started performing professionally, people were a little noisier in audiences than they were at student concerts. Because at student concerts, it's all students being really quiet and being really good. People are a little noisy. They rustle sweets. They chat a little bit. And when you hear them chat, you're thinking, what, what are they saying about me? But do you know what? 
I had to just focus because I'm a professional. So I would say that to anyone who finds a female conductor. His whole complaint about her was not... Well, he, he did question the choice. It wasn't a good choice. But the, when it really got down to, what's wrong with her? What's wrong with her? It was that she was off-putting as a woman. Now, I'm shocked by that because growing up, I never heard anything like that. I think I grew, grew up in a very good, sweet spot where I didn't hear any sexism or anything. I thought that was a thing of the past. You know, I didn't see the point of, you know, the feminism kind of burning the bras. And I wouldn't call myself a feminist now. But that's kind of feminism. That's like, thank you for that. And we have all this. But occasionally that sort of thing pops up. Um, but my experience in the classical world, that's, that's the exception, not the rule. But, you know, if I... It is still unusual to have female conductors and there is on occasion those sort of attitudes and the guy that said that to me he is very high up he was a plain orchestra reasonable position but he was quite a bully actually he's a bullies quite a lot of musicians and he's quite high up in some medium level orchestras in London and so the problem is when toxic attitudes like that and when they believe, you know, not even keeping it to yourself, you're quite open with that, so you clearly believe that's okay. When that gets into a level of power, because see it on the other foot, you know, and people would complain if I had, like, yeah, oh, kind of a male conductor, it's just so off putting. You know, a world where that exists, and not everyone is saying that, but yeah, there is that. So I do think female conductors do have to fight that attitude. And I think at the time I was very polite to him. And I think these days, I that was at a time in my life perhaps when I would just keep my thoughts to myself a little bit more. I think these days I would just say, well, if you can't handle it, you know, get out of the kitchen. But you're living, you learn. And I do think if we do see anyone with these outspoken toxic kind of attitudes, it is a good, it's not, we don't have to get hysterical about it, and we don't have to go, well, it's all wrong, and the whole music industry is absolutely broken, but perhaps, you know, like, low-key, just go, well, that's weird, maybe you should work on that, then, you know, we could deal with it, I think, you know, I have put up with people, very few people say sort of stuff, but I think I've learned to question them, rather than my choices in hiring a female conductor who has received awards and studied under Ashkenazi. But please let me know what you think about conductors. Ask me any questions. If I didn't cover something you wanted to know about being a conductor, then yeah, please get in touch. And also, yeah, female conductors, you can always leave a message. Leave a message about anything. I will put it in my podcast, unless it's rude. And, uh, or you can email me, assistant at hannahwarmer.online. And now, on to my next section of this podcast, COVID-19 and the arts. At the beginning of 2020, as we all know, COVID-19 swept the world. It is a global pandemic, it's, but that phrase has been overused. But the arts have been incredibly affected by this. I think in two folds. It's shown they in some ways have been overlooked, especially in the UK. But in addition, it's shown a weakness in our industry 
our lack of resilience not in art form but as a business our, and our lack of being able to um change quickly and survive they definitely they definitely have been left out the loop with a lot of policies and funding policies but so have a lot of industries including i know an owner of a play center and they have yet to receive any funding and this is not just this individual play center this is like a sort of chain of play centers um but the arts they're definitely there's loads of talk there's loads of uproar but what i did not see for the first half of this year was much action from the arts um it became very clear to me at the beginning of this do you know why i asked myself as a freelancer and self-employed individual when lockdown started in the uk i looked through all my various forms of outputs of my art and incomes and asked myself which ones are going to continue right here and now and which ones are going to 100 percent stop and i threw myself full-heartedly into the ones that could continue and i increased those there was still quite a lot of film composing going on because that's post-production in film. So when a film's being made, it can still do the post-production. It's just, you know, no acting's going on. And virtual concerts, I was doing them once a month. I stepped them up to three times a week. It was a way for my audiences to still have something. So I could still give output, but at the same time, it was also an income all of these were still incomes I could still actively grab so I made sure that my business let's go back to business again instead of into art form the art forms I was putting out were the ones I could still do and I increased those as much as I can use the time to also produce new original music which I can't always do when a busy week of concerts composing for film various things activities like that here's a time where i can put those outputs in and if you've listened to my other podcast they provide a passive income i had to remember that word sorry it's a big car just then this is the downside of composing near a road a comp- <laughs> podcasting near a road if it if, you know if it disrupts the podcast too much i will take it back to um the dry space of the studio um, but I didn't see this a lot in the arts. I saw a lot of people very, very and rightly upset that their whole life that... Because music isn't just a job. It's not just an income. They had their income removed, but they also had their love, their whole life. Something to be a musician. It is your life. It's been your life since a young child. All of that removed. But I didn't see a lot of action I saw various talks, various communities, various groups and forums talking about how upsetting it was, but I didn't see a lot of action. And I felt, I felt that virtual concerts, there should be classical musicians going into virtual concerts. And then over the months, I've seen pop stars, very big pop stars, coming on to places like Stage It, where I perform, um, such as Liam Rhymes. Um, and audience at the start I saw audiences really getting into stage it I mean they're great they're great I believe new form of output that but classical musicians and classical music in general have not understood appreciated or respected in my opinion the virtual concert and first of all I would like to say the number one thing about virtual concert it isn't the same as a regular audience concert 
I've said this more in the, I think I've said it in the past, um, on one of these podcasts, but what I've started to see in the pandemic is the, um, the psychology behind live concerts. It goes way beyond just the playing and the performance. It's the inclusivity, it's the community, it's the interactivity, and that's, comes naturally to a concert so much so that we've never really looked into it but when that's removed and it's put on a streaming device then suddenly you see how very flat a concert is without any of that and so the best I believe virtual concerts I've started to see these develop are ones that have thought about making an element of interactivity to their concerts love Ronnie Scott's what they're doing they um they have their wonderful jazz concerts now and virtual concerts and they do a cocktail of the day and you can mix your cocktail at home you can comment through the comments page i've been watching these outside doing a barbecue and in a way this is a new way to enjoy a concert going to ronnie scott's that's a jazz club in london that's a once in a while opportunity for me once a year, once every two, three, four years, it will involve a long journey into that part of London. It's a late night, then it's getting home. It's, you know, tired the next day. So, and, and you know, the expense of it all. But now I can do Ronnie Scott's on a Monday or a Wednesday or a Thursday. And I can do it. I can choose them. I can sit with friends. We can, even we've got some drums out by the barbecue and I can play along if I want to, could not do that, you know, badly play along, I can't play drums. But I wouldn't take it away when this pandemic's over, definitely live concerts will still be a huge part of my life. But this is an old, a, another way to have more music in my life, not less, not coming away from the live in the flesh concerts, but more music every day of the week. I can tune in and tune out of these concerts. I can watch bits of them if they're two hours long. It's amazing. And now finally, into August, I've started to see classical concerts and classical musicians getting on board with virtual concerts, but it's taken them a long time. And hopefully to do this well, they will have an interactive part. And interactive can be in any way. It's, yeah, reading the comments and, and getting back to questions. That's an interactive nature. But it's it's got to be something. Otherwise, people, I believe, get very bored of watching live concerts in a very two-dimensional, flat way. Um, but yeah, the COVID-19 has affected the arts greatly. And I think it's a two-prong attack. Well, three-prong, actually. So on the one hand, governments haven't put the arts at their number one priority. And I'm, that's not criticism to any government. It's just kind of, I would call it a fact. But, you know, there's been other things like, you know, in the UK, the NHS keeping that afloat, key workers, all this sorts of stuff. And so the arts will take a step behind that, just like any any global tragedy um second of all i do think there's been a slow uptake you know it's been a shock to the system of artists and arts organizations just like but what do we do now what 
and it's been this period of what whereas i don't know if i have a big fight or flight mode or what you know a lot of adrenaline straight away day one of lockdown sat down with a spreadsheet what can i do what can i do what can i do um and then the third prong of that attack is that this is a virus that affects breathing it's there's something called the viral load and a bit like the AIDS virus the more you have in your system the worse the effects are so there's quite a few opera singers who have been they're not in the age range that's maybe vulnerable but they've had terrible case of this um, this virus almost at death's door and then there's the how do you recuperate five months later they're still not at full breathing capacity so we've got to find a way to protect our artists not me personally I'm a violinist don't do a lot of heavy breathing or anything in that and even if my breathing was affected it would not necessarily affect my art but how do we how do we protect our artists the brass the wind and the singers that could potentially get life-threatening bouts of this virus and then possibly never recover we have yet to see anyone who has been adversely affected by this virus recover to full health it could be a case they do we don't know yet it's too early so i do feel tremendously sad for anyone who is playing those sort of instruments or anything to do with the breathing but i can't fully support concert halls going back at this time i think it's irresponsible before we know but we need to find ways and i would say virtual concerts are the way it's just how you do them but that's a very controversial subject so i would love to hear your thoughts even if they're completely anti what i'm saying because i'm not speaking as a brass player i'm not speaking as a doctor or a scientist i'm speaking as a layman with strong opinions but that is all we have time for today on this podcast I hope you guys enjoy it. Please let me know if the sound is too... I know it's a little bit quieter on this um, head mic. It's a very cheap head mic. Chinese made. Um, I know episode one was the best quality, but let me know if it's too intrusive and I will go back to the studio. I just like sitting, pondering the garden and it feels like I'm chatting with you guys. This is how I do conversations. People just sit and nod while I I talk. But join me next week for some more strong, uneducated opinions on classical music, film music and everything else with The Rosin Diaries. (laughs) 